I want to convince you to not be a Christian. I want to convince you to resist being a Christian. And I say that mostly tongue-in-cheek for shock value, but my main point uh, today is that I want to convince you to not be a Christian, but to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a disciple of, of Rabbi Jesus. I want us to just take uh, today and consider uh, what scripture teaches uh, about what it looks like to, to identify with God's people, to be one of God's, God's people, and specifically in terms of discipleship. I want us to look at how we understand this idea of discipleship and, what it, and how Jesus understood the idea of discipleship back in his day. Because uh, the word disciple uh, shows up uh, 262 times in scripture, referring to Jesus's people. Uh, and 269 altogether, sometimes it's referring to other people like today. Uh, so it's the it's most common word used in scripture in the New Testament to refer to Jesus's people. Whereas uh, Christian, the word Christian is only used three times in scripture, and it's used by uh, non-Christians. It's used by not Jesus followers. It's only used three times and mostly by like Romans that were, you know, had this like really diverse kingdom uh, empire and they were trying to just like come up with a term to call the people that were following Jesus. And, um, and so it's, uh, it, in, in a lot of ways it, w- it was sometimes used a little bit like derogatory, like a little bit sarcastic. And it was just kind of referring to this sect, the, just a way for like Roman officials to largely like identify this sect, this religious sect amongst all the other religious sects out in, in, in the empire. So it's not a word that's like broadly rooted in scripture and it didn't like come from Jesus or any of the apostles or anything like that. And really uh, the, the term Christian, it means uh, belonging to the party of Christ uh, or uh, kind of like as if Jesus were like a political candidate or uh, like a philosopher or something. Um, like Platonian philosophy, you know, like of the philosophy of Plato. And I guess part of the reason why I hope to convince you to not be a Christian today is because I think when we use the term Christian in our culture currently, it really has that same kind of connotation. Like we we would be a, a Republican or a Democrat and a Christian. Like we identify with the party of a certain set of ideals or principles or convictions or something like that. We say we're a Christian. We're meaning we're saying like I I agree with this. Like I agree mentally with this philosophy or these this set of ideas. Uh, and so it's kind of got this kind of cultural co- dynamic where what makes you a Christian is like how you vote. I'll let you pick which side Christian do you think you think Christian should vote on. And you know so if I vote this way and I don't do these certain things or something like that, then and I, I believe in there's a God. I'll check the box that you know, that I'm a Christian, and you, you see this just deeply in our culture, like, the people who check the box Christian is, like, a crazy majority of our country, but then if you, like, go, like, a level deeper, like, people who participate in a gathering of, of Jesus followers, like, twice a month, you know, it goes down to, like, super, super low, and I, and I think this understanding of the term Christian, it really hurts us when we come to the Bible, when we come to read scripture and read what Jesus has said uh, because Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, he's all about disciples. He's all about about followers. And so, if discipleship was important to Jesus, um, you know, if it's at the root of uh, his last words, like right before he ascends to heaven, he says, "Go and make disciples of all nations." Then I think it's I, I'm I'm hopeful that it would benefit us to just take take a, a minute to dive into what what discipleship is and and what it means for us today. So, 
So that's kind of what we're going to look at today. First point I'm calling Discipleship 101. Uh, so I told you Matthew 7, but I'm sorry. I uh, told you wrong. Flip a couple pages to the right, Matthew 9, uh, verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. So right off the bat, we see that Jesus himself understands himself as a, as a teacher, as someone worth following or someone that people can follow. Because he, he calls Matthew away from his job, his career, his stability, his, his financial security, and he says, follow me. So Jesus, how did Jesus understand himself? He saw himself as a teacher or a rabbi uh, that, could call, that could call followers. And it's also worth noting that Jesus called lots of people to follow him, and, and we don't know that all of them actually did follow him. So he didn't necessarily bat a thousand when it came to calling disciples. So that's how Jesus understood himself. Look at uh, verse 14. Skip down to verse 14. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and, and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So now we have Jesus uh, interacting with someone else's disciples. John is referring to John the baptizer, the guy who baptized Jesus, uh, which is a pretty cool thing to put on your resume, your spiritual resume. And he had some, uh, he had some disciples that followed him as well. And, and they, the, John's disciples, they referenced the Pharisees, who would have been men who were uh, discipled under a rabbi and raised up to then in turn be rabbis that could have disciples. And I'm pointing all this out to say, to, for us to see that discipleship was just kind of part of the warp and woof of, of life in, in Jesus' day and age. It was just uh, a very common paradigm for how civilization held together. So it wasn't like something Jesus invented, uh, but just the way it worked back then. So we're just to dive into a tiny bit of a history lesson for us this morning, uh, look, looking at a little bit of a historical overview of discipleship. Uh, we, we see evidence of discipleship uh, several centuries before Jesus' day in uh, ancient Greece. Uh, most famously, uh, the philosopher Plato was a disciple of Socrates. So he learned under Socrates, and both those guys are pretty famous and shaped Western thought a lot. And then fast-forwarding fast into first-century Jewish culture, this was just like the way civilization continued on from generation to generation. It actually provided an incredible amount of stability for, for Jewish culture and uh, uh, civilization. So the education system of the day then involved both boys and girls uh, going to school uh, when, they, when they are young. It was called the Beth Safer, or House of the Book. Uh, and this is kind of basically elementary school where they learn you know, the basic kind of functions, reading, writing, arithmetic. Uh, and then they probably memorize the entire Torah, uh, which is kind of cool, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, and so a parenting pro tip, this is for free. If you're wondering what's wrong with your kids or you want them to behave better, maybe they need to memorize Deuteronomy or something like that. Maybe that will help. I don't know. That's for free. Take it or leave it. Uh, but then around age 12, they'd be done with, with the house of the book. And um, they, the uh, girls would return back to their family home uh, where they'd live probably for just a few more years and then get married. Uh, and boys, uh, most boys would then go and uh, basically uh, apprentice or disip be discipled under their fathers and whatever the family business is. Uh, that's, that's, how, 
that, that was kind of like your job security, so you just did whatever your father was doing. And we see this when Jesus calls uh, the brothers James and John to be his disciples uh, in, in later on in the Gospels, um, or in, in the Gospel of John, where it says they were in the boat with their father, and they like left their net in the boats and, the, and left their father with the, fa- with the hired servants. Like that's how like radical the, the move to discipleship was, is that they had just been normal dudes that went to Beth Safer and then joined their dad on the boat in the fishing industry, and then Jesus came along and called them to, to follow him. But if you were really good uh, in the house of the book, you went on to Beth Midrash, uh, which is just the house of learning, where you'd study more of the scriptures, the prophets, and the Psalms, and you'd kind of be lumped in with uh, the adults of the community who would come to the synagogue uh, or the temple to, to study the scriptures. And, and then a very, very super elite number of people would leave Beth Midrash uh, to pursue becoming a disciple of a rabbi, like a, a, a personal pupil of a, of a rabbi, which is the Hebrew word for teacher. Um, and the relationship between uh, a rabbi and a Talmudim was very close, so it was very elite. Like if a rabbi said, yes, you can be my disciple, it was a, it was a huge compliment because this wasn't like getting a college degree where you just went to class on Tuesday or Thursday with a professor or you'd follow your rabbi like a YouTube channel, you know, you'd get a ding when he was going live and you could tune in if you felt like it or something. Uh, being a disciple of a rabbi in Jesus' day and age was this holistic 24-7 life together kind of system where you left your family and your father's house, kind of like James and John did, to follow Jesus, and you'd spend all your time with your rabbi. Uh, You'd eat with your rabbi, travel with your rabbi, live with your rabbi, learn from your rabbi, practice stuff with your rabbi. So it was all the the time you're with your rabbi, and there was was this um, uh, kind of blessing or like a proverb, a Hebrew proverb that said, uh, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Like it, it was a good, seen as a good thing to get accepted to, uh, to, to follow a rabbi as a disciple. Uh, and then the hope is that you just would have a great relationship and you'd be super close with him. And the goal of uh, discipleship uh, to a rabbi was not to get certified or to get a degree or you know qualify for grad school or something. The goal of discipleship was very, re- very relational and it, it was essentially to become like your rabbi, to as, as much as you possibly could to literally be your rabbi. Now, this sounds maybe weird to us because we are in a really individualistic culture, right, where we're all special snowflakes and we all have a special trajectory that only we can decide for ourselves and all that stuff. And, and, and I'm not saying all that's bad. You know, we are different and we all glorify God in different ways. But back then, there was just incredible value in this culture for having the opportunity to live life super closely with someone whose way of life you saw as meaningful and beneficial and, and, and led to flourishing. And, w- and, you know, uh, one of the, I think the Lou Damiani quote is like, I love when science catches up to the Bible or whatever, but neuroscience and just human, indel- human development, they, they confirm that we're like, mimic we're creatures designed to mimic someone like all the way from like growing up to like as we move out into life where we actually have neurons that equip us to take on the the behaviors of the people around us so we're even in the way god designed our bodies to work is kind of set up for for discipleship so that's a super brief overview of uh, first century discipleship um i think the the word that probably, uh, in our language, in English, that would 
get us closest to the meaning of discipleship would be apprentice or apprenticeship. We think of being a Christian or following Jesus. We don't think of like uh, like joining a Republican Party or Democrat Party or becoming an Arminian or a Calvinist or something like that, like with a set of ideas. Uh, we think of like becoming an electrician. Like if all, if all of a sudden you and I re- realized that it was a life and death situation, that we had to become an electrician or we would die, like what would we do? It's a weird, it's a weird scenario. It's a weird scenario, but we would find an electrician, stop whatever else we're doing, and just like go to work with that dude or girl every day so we could learn, learn how it works. And now if you flip a couple pages to the left, or maybe just one, no, yeah, one page to the left, Look at Matthew 7, because Jesus shows us kind of the dynamic of apprenticeship, if you will, the, the kind of the, the double-prong approach to, to discipleship to Jesus. Look at Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down. The streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus is showing the the holistic aspect of following him where there's teaching and there's practice. You can hear the words of Jesus and then put them, put them into practice. Getting the information of Jesus is only part of the battle. To follow Jesus or to be a disciple is, is not only just that we know his word or we've like heard it in our, you know, our head buckets. That it's, like it's in there rattling around, but it's that we put it into practice. And this, this little parable that Jesus tells is crazy because... What is the difference between the two men, the wise person and the foolish man? What, what, what is the thing that sets them, sets them apart? It's, it's not that they, whether or not they have Jesus' teaching. It's not like one man had his teaching and the other man was just ignorant of it. It's that they both had it and one of them did it. One, one of them put it into practice. And the, the difference between our, our lives like crumpling in the face of reality is whether or not we actually put Jesus' teaching into practice. So it's teaching and practice when it comes to following Jesus. You can think of it like both sides of scissors. You know, like how helpful is it to have just like one piece of scissors? Now there's a, there's a hinge in the middle there and, and you need both sides for them to work. And just like with our electrician, like there would be information transferred with our electrician, uh, our master electrician. Like he would tell us facts about how breaker boxes work and what the code says for running wires and all these different things. And we, we'd get that information, but then he'd actually say, like, hey, go wire that light switch. Or, like, hey, go run this wire all the way down the house, and you would go and do it. Like, if you just watch a lot of YouTube videos on a, how to be an electrician, like I do. Like, YouTube is my grandpa. teaches me how to do stuff. Uh, you're not really an electrician unless you're, like, wa- doing it, unless you're wiring a house. The point is that discipleship in general, and specifically in Jesus' day and age, is a holistic way of life kind of thing. There's this really goofy feature on my uh, Bible software that I have that I use to study for sermons, where when you put in a topic, it will find stock photos that it thinks relates to whatever, whatever topic that you're, uh, that you're studying. 
And so as I was studying discipleship, uh, there were like eight stock photos came up, and all of them showed people sitting around a table with Bibles open, and the best ones had cups of coffee by next to those Bibles. And so that's what, that's what uh, my Logos Bible software thinks discipleship is. And let me be clear, sitting around a table with coffee and Bibles and bros is like my favorite thing in the world. Like I love doing that. So I'm not saying like we need to get rid of sitting around a table with our Bibles and some coffee, praise his name. I'm just saying that in our culture, uh, we've kind of reduced discipleship to that. Like it's, you know, it's a workbook or it's, it's just reading, reading your Bible. It seems like something, something has changed in our understanding of discipleship between Jesus' day and age and our day and age. And one of the benefits of history, the reason why I belabor our journey into this history is because history lets us see outside of our, kind of our, our cultural blinders, our cultural, our cultural lens. And I think uh, largely because of uh, modernism and just kind of this heightened view of like mental intellect and reason and logic, which all is good and glorifies God and has its place, like we've kind of reduced ourselves to what uh, Rene Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. Like the, we, we kind of are what we are, what we think. Whereas discipleship, this apprenticeship idea involves all of us, like it involves teaching, it involves what we think, uh, but but also this holistic kind of engagement. And you see this uh, all the way back into the, the Old Testament when Moses gets the law. Moses given the law in Deuteronomy 4. Let me just read this for us real quick because I think its connection to Matthew 7 is amazing. Moses gets the law. Um, he says, See, I have taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, that for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all, pe all the peoples. Who then, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this is a great nation. This great nation is wise and understanding. Do you see that in there? Like Jesus being the truer and better Moses? Like Moses gave the law and says, do them, practice them, and that will be your wisdom. And Jesus says, do what I, what I have taught you and you will be wise. You will have built your house on the rock. The, uh, uh, the Lexham Theological Word Book summarizes discipleship like this. The process of devoting oneself to a teacher to learn from him and become more like him. For the Christian, this refers to the process of learning the teachings of Jesus, following after his example in obedience through the power of the Spirit. So it's kind of like a three-pronged deal. You got teaching, becoming like him, practicing it through the power of the Spirit. So when we say we're gathering around this idea as a church family of following Jesus together, this is what we're going for. And, and it's just the question before all of us is, will we want, want to be his disciples, this 24-7 life with him, to become like him in character? Like where we, we become, it becomes like second nature to go through life the way Jesus did. Like second, like it's, it would be more natural to not lust than it would be to lust. It'd be more natural to bless our enemies than it would be to curse them. It would be more natural, like second nature, like deep in our bones and our character to trust God rather than be anxious. All, all, all of these things are characteristics of Jesus. And when we seek to be his disciples, they can become ours by the power of the spirit. So again, uh, the, 
I would encourage you to just pray about this idea. And again, it might just be all shock value to not be a Christian, but to be a Jesus follower, to not just mentally accept some ideas or check a box, identify with certain things like you, you know, you identify with U of M basketball or something like that. But the, this this reshaping of life around Jesus. And discipleship of Jesus is good news. Uh, moving on to my second point, because it is a relationship based on grace. Discipleship to Jesus is an all-of-life kind of deal, and it's a relationship based on grace. Look with me at a a sermon text here in verse 14. Flip back to Matthew 9, verse 14. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So Jesus is talking to disciples of people other than himself, people who are not following the way of, way of Jesus, and they're addressing this religious practice of fasting. And in the, the Old Testament, in the first century, fasting typically was used to point to mourning or sadness or just kind of like paying penance uh, for sin. And what Jesus is saying here in this passage is mind-blowing because Jesus is saying that he actually is the point of fasting, that all fasting throughout Scripture has ultimately been pointing to the longing and the need for him. And Jesus gives us these three little mini parables. You got the, the bridegroom, you got the patch, and then you got the wine. So let's just dive into the wine example. Wine was a big deal in this day and age because it's hard to keep water from making you sick. And so they would make wine and they would put it, new wine, fresh wine, into fresh wineskins, like still like soft, supper, supple leather. Uh, because the wine would still be fermenting, right? giving off the gases that come off when it's fermenting. And so as it kind of fermented and fizzled inside these wineskins, the wineskins would kind of like stretch and balloon up, which was fine because they were new wineskins. They could, they could stretch and roll with kind of the effervescent life coming off of this, this fresh wine. So you can imagine the disaster that would happen if you put fresh, fermenting, fizzing wine into an old, shriveled, dry, brittle wineskin. It's going to burst, like that, that gas will expand, and then the, the skins will just pop. And Jesus is saying, if you try to follow him, if you try to do the religious practices according to Jesus, uh, apart from grace, apart from this relationship, then it's going to destroy everything. Like, for example, with fasting, if you, if you try to fast with this, like, mourning, penance, hard on yourself as you follow Jesus, like, it's going to destroy everything. It's going to make you a miserable, bitter, self-righteous person. That's because it's a relationship based on grace. And we see that in the first mini parable in verse 15. He says, how can the, the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Do you, do you see when he's asked about fasting, he just starts talking about this wedding party? He just says like, but the party's going on. Like, why would we not eat at a wedding feast? And he's asserting himself as the bridegroom, as the point of the party, as the reason why we're celebrating In this case, fasting, all of the practices of Jesus, but in this case, fasting is directly connected with the the presence of Jesus. 
Discipleship is not, it, it, with Jesus is new because it's not this like frantic following after a rabbi trying to keep up with them. It's not old, crusty religion where, you know, we don't even know why we're doing it. You know, John's disciples are like, why do we in the, in the Pharisees fast, but you, you don't fast? Like, you want me to tell you why you do something? You know, that, that's a, that's a, it's a funny question, a tragically funny question. But here we see the beauty of following, following Jesus is that everything that we do is ultimately about experiencing his presence, this relationship based on grace. And it, all of the practices involves obedience. It even involves like self-denial in some sense, like fasting. But the point is so that we can feast on him, that he is like a wedding feast. And this, this parable uh, that he gives us with the, with the bridegroom is Jesus putting himself in the place of the God of the Old Testament. Again, a lot of Jesus' claims to deity of being God we are kind of lost on us sometimes. Uh, but this would have been super clear to his, his listeners because one of the most common ways that God uh, described his relationship to Israel, his chosen people throughout the Old Testament, is one of a husband or a, or a bridegroom. Here's just one example. This is from Ezekiel 16. God says to his people, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And so these big lofty words from the God of the Old Testament, Jesus says, that's me. Bam, I'm here. The bridegroom is here. He fulfills this metaphor in the flesh. And we see that, that this is an intense relational reality of, of biblical discipleship because the point is intimacy. Like the metaphor we're working with here is marriage, the most intimate human relationship that we have. So all of the obedience, all of the, the teaching and the commands that Jesus has, the practices and spiritual dis dis disciplines are really just a grace. They're a means to experience the grace of, of God. They're directly connected with Jesus' presence and steadfast love. Jesus says, abide in me and I abide in you. You flourish and thrive like a branch flourishes and thrives when it's connected to the vine. And this marriage dynamic, I think, makes a lot of sense of the, the obedience part of following Jesus, something that I think we, we're a little bit anemic on in our, in our church, in our, our Christian culture. Because when you love someone, your life changes and you just do things really differently. There are just natural practices that we do or that we desire to do, things that we might not even prefer to do, that we want to do in and of ourselves, but we do because of who we love. Like, you know, for example, like I'm not you know, earning a living or you know, trying to keep all of my stuff off of our bathroom counter uh, to earn Camille's love. Like I pack up my dop kit and put it in the closet every time I brush my teeth because that's, that's because I love Camille. I'm not trying to earn her love. I already have it in the covenant of our marriage. And so there's things that I just like live differently. There's practices of like not keeping my stuff out on the counter. This is a little different now because Johnny can get into like everything. So we have to keep things high. Uh, but that was like a point of marriage where I'm just like, why? She's like, you're leaving a trail. And I'm like, no, I'm just living in my house. Like, this is not a trail. It's just where I live. Anyways, we compromise and I, now I don't leave a trail. Um, But Jesus says in John 15, when you obey my commands, you abide in my love. That this experience of Jesus' love happens when we like, actually do what he says, like when we actually obey what he says. There's a connection between the degree to which we experience Jesus' love 
and like our obedience game. And we might be thinking, well, I thought we were saved by grace through faith and not by works. No, no one can boast. What's all this stuff of like doing stuff in literal ways? Well, let me just tell you that nothing will make the reality of grace more real to you than actually seeking to obey Jesus, actually seeking to follow what Jesus says to do and be. Jesus has hardwired his way, his way of life to require grace. Like if grace is just kind of an abstract concept in our minds, then I would, I would encourage you to try to actually read what Jesus calls us to do and then try to do it. Because uh, we just inevitably will fall on our faces and, we'll, and we'll, need, we'll see our need for grace. Let me just give you an example. Jesus says to not be angry with your brother in your heart. He says if you're angry with your brother, you're just as guilty as a murderer, which is pretty intense. And so the command then to address that anger in our heart is to go and be reconciled to your brother. If you know that somebody has something against you, if you've wronged someone, you don't just kind of like, oh, I'm going to sit on this side of the church or go to a different church or change jobs or you know, whatever our, our strategies might be. Like Jesus says, like, if you want to work on the anger in your heart, go and confess your sin. Confess how you've broken, pe you've, you've hurt people, you've created brokenness. Because nothing will make you realize your need for grace than saying, like, I hurt you, will you forgive me? You know, no, no, like, if, ands, or buts. Like, even if, you're, you know, you're only, like, 20% in the wrong and they're, like, 80% in the wrong or something like that. Like, nothing will make you, nothing will make you see the need for the cross like actually admitting that you've, that you've sinned to, to a real-life person right in front of you. And just because I think if I, if we were doing categories, um, I think, you know, a lot of us would probably fall on the side of, you know, the casual, like, it's not about rules, it's about relationship type of following Jesus. And then, I don't know if you've ever met them, but then there are these kind of, like, really intense, like, serious Christians that are, like, super serious about everything, and they're just mean. You just don't like to hang out. They're kind of jerks. Like, they're really knowledgeable about Scripture, and they don't, you know, do anything bad or, you know, only watch Christian movies or something like that, just kind of fanatical. And let me just say again, in the line of grace, like, that's not what we're talking about here, uh, this kind of fanaticism. Uh, Tim Keller, I thought, had a helpful ex explanation of fanaticism. He says, a fanatic is someone who's rude. A fanatic is somebody who's insensitive. Fanatics are cruel. Fanatics are bigoted. Fanatics are proud, and so forth. That's a fanatic. Most people think that fanaticism is a function of the degree of commitment to Christ. So if you're committed to Christ, then you become a fanatic, and you're rude and abrasive and all that stuff. He goes on to say, the problem with the fanatic is the reason he or she is so offensive is that they're not fanatical enough. They might be fanatically like their Lord in some ways, but not in most ways. They're not fanatically sensitive like Jesus. They're not fanatically loving. They're not fanatically self-sacrificing. They're not fanatically humble. They never are. They're not fanatically wise. If you see a person you consider fanatical in the way of Jesus and you find him offensive, rude, and so forth, that's not a function of being too zealous for Christ. It's a function of not being zealous enough. You are not fully orbed in your zealousness. Is, can we wait till afterwards? Is that all right? Yeah, I'll, I'll be around afterwards. Good to have you, man. I'm glad you came.
That's great. Can, is it all right if we talk afterwards? Okay. Yeah, we're, we're glad, glad you're here. We're, I'm glad you're here. This is why uh, the fact that all of us, and to some degree, we're going to be partially orbed. We're going to have like blind spots in our fanaticism. There's going to be parts of the way of Jesus that just like make sense to us, and we just want to like run full speed into them. And then there's going to be other parts where we're just completely clueless. Is why it takes grace, and why we need the body of Christ. That's why none of us individually are the body of Christ. It's the whole church community that are the body of Christ, because all of us are just going to have some fanatical parts about us that, that we like, and then we're just going to be blind to others. An easy example is, I made up these terms, but you, you got the studiers and you got the relaters. You got people who just kind of go through life in their head, and they love doctrine and reading, and they have all kinds of great ideas, and then you have people that just like just want to hang out, just want to be together, just want to get to know people and, uh, and just you know, spend time. And so you have the, the studiers that are like, no, you need truth. Like, you can't you can't just hang out. Like, you need a Bible study. You need something going on. And the relators are like, hey, what about love? Why don't we just love each other? And the Jesus is, is, is the way of love. And like, which one's right? Yes, both of them are. Like, we speak the truth and love. And, and so we need both of them together for it to work. And the only way that we can actually like, acknowledge, like, I'm a studier. I need relators to point out my blind spots uh, is if we have really come home to the fact that we need grace, that we're, that we're imperfect. Jesus says it like this in, in Matthew 7. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Do you see the grace that's implicit in here? Jesus is saying that if you're going to follow him, the like ground floor foundational assumption is that all of us have like a telephone pole sticking out of our eyes. Like part of following Jesus is that we're sinners saved by grace, which means we have blind spots. Like how well are you going to see your own junk if you have a telephone pole sticking out of your eye? And so we, we need people to in turn point out our specs, but the only way that that is healthy is if we all are walking in grace, knowing that we have stuff that we're missing. I say all this, and maybe this is redundant, but if you, if you really want to follow Jesus, uh, there's just no, no real risk, uh, if we let him be how he is in Scripture, of being, uh, being legalistic. It's <laughs> it, okay. Uh, I think Zach's on top of it. Um, so as we as we follow Jesus, I'm not really sure what to do. If I should keep preaching or not? I think Zach wasn't on. Okay, well I'm just gonna wrap this up. Long story short. Uh, the burning longing of my heart, like the, what I pray for day after day, is that God, God would revitalize us into a church of, uh, of devoted disciples, of, of committed Jesus followers who, who submit to Jesus as Lord of our lives and submit to one another in love. Uh, and, and sure, I hope that we grow in numbers. Like I hope that we're back in 
the auditorium uh, someday as we grow. Uh, but to be honest, I would take 20 sold-out followers of Jesus over like 400 people who just come because they like the, you know, the music or the, or the preaching or something like that. And just to uh, end with a, a practical thing, if, if this is you, you're hearing this, and you're like, yeah, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want to move forward in following Jesus. Uh, I have something for you to, to, to consider. I, I, I love trying to simplify things, and sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. The most important thing to do in discipleship to Jesus is show up. Two words, show up. The most important thing to do in discipleship to Jesus is to show up. Like 70% of the work of following Jesus is just like being available. You see this real clearly in Philippians 2. Uh, Paul's writing to the church. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, there's two, two sides of this. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. We, sh we show up to discipleship to Jesus with fear and trembling. We're working out our salvation. Like our salvation is not done at the moment that we get saved. Uh, we enter into sanctification and we just enjoy the fruits of our salvation on into eternity. And so we show up with fear and trembling. We show up uh, to life with Jesus uh, hum humble working out our salvation because it's God who does it, God who wills and works according to his pleasure. So we don't make it happen. We don't, like, stiff arm it. We just show up to it. Real simply, uh, this might seem too elementary for you. If not, if it is, come see me and we'll, we can talk about more. But we, we show up to our Sunday gatherings. We show up to our connecting groups uh, that are on Tuesday evening right now. And we show up to spiritual friendships where we can, we can know each other and be known by people. Because Jesus said that the church is his body. Like, you, if you want to spend time with Jesus on the earth right now, like, he isn't here in the body, right? He's been taken away from us, like we read. Uh, but his body now is the church, all of us together. The Holy Spirit dwells in God's people. And I don't say this because our Sunday morning gatherings are, like, super smooth and never awkward, like, right now. Uh, I don't say it because connecting group is always like this, you know, glowing Shekinah glory where we all hover out in a cloud of brotherly love and sisterly love. Uh, but we're going in with fear and trembling <clears throat> in faithfulness, with openness, because we want God to work it out. We want God to will and to work to make us more like Jesus. And then we show up to scripture. Uh, so thankful for the Carters kind of leading out with our reading plan. Uh, I think that's a, a great way where you just show up to scripture. We don't have to show up with a seminary degree or a ton of commentaries. We just read it and see what God might do. To close, <clears throat> I also just do not want to assume that all of us are here being like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. Like this like kind of high bar, this like call to way of life and following Jesus as a disciple uh, might not actually sound that good to some of us. Like th there's so many ways that you can get you can get Jesus as just like a Sunday morning pick me up uh, or just a little bit of a chicken soup for the soul when your soul is sad and your normal life isn't working out. 
and and the Bible is difficult to understand and offensive. And church is really hard because all of us are sinners and we mess, and things get messy. And so if you're hearing this and you're like, I just don't want that. Like, I don't want to, like, wrestle with scripture. I don't feel any desire for scripture. No desire to be with God's people. Can I just say thank you for being honest? Like, there's so much freedom and just, like, being honest about what you really want. And also, can I just plead with you to be careful? There's lots of people out there that you could probably find to assure you that you're fine with God because you prayed a prayer back in the day. Uh, but I also see Jesus talking to people who were good, upstanding people, and he says, depart from me, I, n- I never knew you. The casual like agreement with Jesus <clears throat> is not the kind of knowing that allows Jesus to welcome us into his kingdom. It's a life that seeks first the kingdom of God, that sells everything to buy the treasure that is the marker of God's people. And I know that's scary, it's overwhelming, it requires us, like Matthew, to leave a lot of things that provide security and comfort. Uh, But Jesus tells us to take heart uh, because our sins are forgiven and he's with us. Let me pray.